I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Our guest today is Keith Peterson. He's the former Idaho State Historian. Peter, we're talking about the shape of Idaho, how Idaho got its borders. This is going to be great. I think we always take for granted, I know I did, how states got their shapes. And for me, the only thing that really pops out growing up in Iowa, we're the only state that has two rivers that border it on the east and the west. We've oh, got really? the, the Mississippi and the Missouri River. So that's how we got those borders. But other states, how did they get their shapes? I don't know. They're just lines on a map. But somebody had to come up with those lines. Somebody had to put them on the ground. Uh, there's a fascinating story that uh, Keith has put together in book form called Inventing Idaho. Uh, we'll talk more about that book and, and how he came up with these really interesting historical stories that impact our daily lives here in Idaho. We'll dig into that in a bit. But first, Peter, you've got some nature news. I certainly do, Leaf. Did you know that cannabis, also known as marijuana, is known to give people the munchies? Uh, I've heard this. Yes. I, I did some research. You did? <laughs> um, literature research, literature. by the way. Literature, okay. Yes, sure. yes. So how marijuana causes the munchie is cannabinoids act by binding to a cannabinoid detector protein called right. cannabinoid receptors in the brain, the nervous system, and other parts of the body, which is... A part of the endocannabinoid system. You kidding? We have that? Yes, we totally do. All right. Right, right. And the endocannabinoid system plays an important role in eating, anxiety, learning, and memory, reproduction, metabolism, and much, much more. All right. Now, this begs the question, do nematodes, or these little tiny... Primitive worm, round worm-like. It begs the question. Begs the do question. nematodes yeah. finish? Do nematodes get the munchies <laughs> when exposed to cannabinoids? I was thinking that question this morning. Yeah. that's. I mean, of course. Do nematodes get the munchies? Munchies when they're exposed to cannabinoids. And what's the answer? Uh, well, it's yes. Of course <laughs> they do. Come on now. So just to give a, a brief history of nematodes, um, they diver diverge from the lineage that led to mammals some 500 plus million years ago. Sure. So this is a long time ago. So nematodes, mm -hmm. which are these tiny little wormy things, they yep. live in soil. They are very, very distantly related to us. Yeah. 500 plus way, million years yeah, ago. Yeah, way down ago. that line. Okay, yep. gotcha. Because yep. yep. they're animals and so we share yep. that. Yep. But they have a similar... What, receptor or yeah, response? Well, it, they have a very similar endocannabinoid system. I'm going to get you to say it again. Yeah, you totally are. This is going to be great. So they have a very similar system to us. It, it gets even better. So oh, you go can, ahead. So, so researchers have genetically modified the nematodes. So they took out their endocannabinoid system and replaced <laughs> it with ours. And guess what? still worked. It still worked. And yeah. their munchies were way more intense. So they oh had my. even more munchies after they replaced their system with our system. So jokes aside, <laughs> what they realize is that it really can set the stage for drug screenings and further research because they can do the research on the nematoids versus the humans right. and get very similar results. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just not research on... Um, 
cannabis or marijuana. It's it's further drug research, different types of drugs as well. So Right. So they yeah. can be a model system. Instead yes. of testing it on humans, they can test it on nematodes. But I have so many questions, Peter. How do you know a nematode has the munchies? What are they munching on? Are they into Funyuns? Flaming hot Cheetos? I don't know. <laughs> so Scooby Snacks, maybe. Scooby Snacks. What the, they just? It was so funny because they were saying that when they gave them food, when they were high, uh-huh. they went totally after their favorite types of munchies, but they never did say- oh, They what, never said what a nematode- What, what a nematode munchie is, so- okay. yeah. Dirt, probably dirt, dirt is the answer. <laughs> they go for the dirt. Well, so our ancient ancestry closeness to nematodes is borne out in their fundamental system in responding to cannabinoids the way that humans do. Yep. Our trivia question for today is all about Idaho. What was the first town in Idaho? There's a great story behind that one. When we get back from the break, Keith Peterson joins us to talk all about Idaho and his new book called Inventing Idaho. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, Keith Peterson. He's the former Idaho State historian. Thank you for joining us on The Nature of Idaho. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, so you're a former state historian for our state of Idaho. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the state historian. Well, I've been working in Idaho history for nearly 50 years now, and I guess they figured it was about time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, was, I, I'm a, I was an employee of the Idaho State Historical Society, and that position, interestingly, goes clear back to the 1920s. Many people don't know Idaho has a state historian, but it does and, and still does. And, uh, and I had that position for several years until I retired. So what does a state historian do? Uh, whatever the director asks. <laughs> As duties good, assigned. Good answer. <laughs> um, much of my time, uh, especially the last part of it, was uh, working on the interpretation for the new state museum that uh, opened in 2018. So yeah, it's wonderful. I, I, I had been in on the planning of it and actually had retired, um, and then they asked me to come back and, and do the uh, interpretation for the for the state museum, so I spent a lot of my my years in in that position, working on that project, and you know other other projects as well. We had the territorial uh, sesquicentennial during my time, so we did a lot of exhibits around the around Boise and around the state on that. So I did a lot of work on that as well. That's wonderful. It sounds like a fun job to have and and a way to make history, which it's easy to think of history as old news and not relevant. But I think part of that job is is making communities see how relevant the past is to how they operate today. Oh, I think so. It's always the goal of the State Historical Society to let people know about the significant relevance of history today. So I've got to ask, 10,000 years ago is recent history for Leaf. It's a blink. It's a blink. What is recent history for you and the state of Idaho? Well, you know, that's an interesting, it's, it's interesting. Um, a lot of people don't think of history as being recent, but I mean, history is everything that happened a minute ago. Um, so one of the things that I think places like museums, and historical societies kind of fight against, I guess, is this idea that, um, you know, history happened a long time ago when, in fact, uh, you know, part of our job is to inter interpret the very recent past. 
And I'm working on a, I came out of retirement again to work with the State Historical Society, redoing all of the um, historical highway markers that you see around the state. And, you know, so my first part of that was to, you know, just kind of compile a list of all of them and see what they, what they deal with. And out of 300 and some markers, I think there's seven currently that deal with post-World War II Idaho. Well, World War II was a long time ago, really. So, but we kind of have this concept that unless it happened a long time ago, it's, it's not a purview of historians or places like museums. So, so in the new markers, there will be a lot more contemporary topics to let people know that history didn't stop at some mysterious date in you know, World War II or the 19th century or whatever. I'm chuckling because when I talk with my kids, 1980 to them is a long, <laughs> long time ago. That's ancient history. And I'm kind of like, dudes, I, I lived through that decade. Come on. <laughs> well, so Inventing Idaho is your is your latest book. What led you to write this story? Well, you know, it. Um, I, I, as I said, when I was a state historian, I did a lot of traveling around and did a lot of public presentations and meeting with people. And you know, it didn't really dawn on me for a while, but it was the question that people kept asking. You know, when you look at a map of the West and you toss out Texas and California, which came into the Union under kind of unusual circumstances, what we have is just really a, a lot of rectangles and straight lines for borders. And then you have Idaho, which is this weird shape, which has not only is it kind of humorous, but it's had an impact on the way the state has developed. At any rate, I just kept getting this question. And so I would take some notes and, and do some research and, and so on. And finally, COVID came around and, you know, what are you going to do? So I decided to write a book. So uh, that's kind of how it came about. But it was really because of the, the interest that I, you know, heard from people in every part of the state. It, it seems to be on people's mind, this uh, kind of the strange, the strange look of, of Idaho. How do you go about doing the research? I'm I'm curious what sources you use and how do you dig into the past? What what tools do you have at your disposal in order to resolve these stories? Well, I know there's a lot of really rich resources in, in all parts of the state. I mean, ISU has a wonderful archives, the U of I does, the Idaho State Historical Society, BSU, and then a lot of local historical societies are gathered, you know, just rich treasure troves. I poured through a lot of those in, in other projects over the years. The interesting thing is I did very little of this research in Idaho because Idaho got its shape by people almost 100% who had never been here, knew nothing about Idaho, and just kind of wasted this shape upon it. So it was really done by politicians and, and specifically members of Congress. So a lot of this work research was done in National Archives and, and uh, places like that. So how did Idaho become a state? Was there one person or a group of people that said, hey, we've got a gap here. Let's make this into a state. You know, how, did, how did that come about? Did it start as a territory? And then as other states were forming, it evolved into a state itself? Yeah, yeah. Virtually all uh, states uh, after the original colonies were, um, were, were territories first. That was kind of established early on by Thomas Jefferson, actually, as, as, as a member of the Continental Congress, that a way of how are you going to fill in this, this, this spaces to the west of the original states. And I, I, I mentioned earlier that California and Texas came into the Union under different circumstances, and neither one of them were territories first. But Idaho was, 
And um, Idaho was, uh, well, it's, <laughs> it kind of bounced around. It was a part of Oregon Territory for a while. Then it was a part of Washington Territory for a while. For a while, it was split between Oregon Territory and Washington Territory. And then with the discovery of gold in northern Idaho in, in 1860, a lot of miners started, you know, thousands of miners started pouring into Idaho, as happens during gold rushes. And at that time, all of Idaho was part of Washington Territory, and the capital of Olympia was just a long ways to get to, and you can imagine, in 1860. So there was a clamoring to establish a, a new territory in the West, and that became Idaho in 1863. And originally it was huge. It was bigger than Texas. It included all of today's Idaho, all of Montana, and virtually all of Wyoming. So the first uh, territorial legislature that met in Lewiston, the capital then, petitioned Congress to shrink the territory because it was unmanageable. So that's when, starting in 1864, when Idaho started getting its current shape as, as parts were, were whittled away to form other territories. We talked earlier about the notion that a lot of Western states have straight lines. If you think of Colorado or Wyoming, these are effectively big rectangles. And some of our borders are straight, and then others, most notably our, our Montanan border, is is a big wiggly line. What are the general forms of logic, I guess, in creating borders, or is there any logic? <laughs> yeah, I think I think logic was kind of thrown out the window. <laughs> and actually, if you look at Idaho, almost it, with the exception of two borders, it, it's all straight lines. It's just that they're configured in a in a weird way. Without going into too great a detail, but coming out of the Revolutionary War, the new United States had won the war, and all of a sudden they acquired from England this vast land that was between the what now, now the Mississippi River and the Appalachians. And what are you going to do with all that land? People hadn't really thought about that. I mean, there was some idea that, you know, give it up to land speculators and let them sell it, or many other ideas as well. And it was really Thomas Jefferson who came up with the idea that, no, that should be part of the United States, and there should be a way for new states to come into the Union that have the same rights and privileges and obligations as the original 13 states, which was kind of a radical concept, and many people hadn't thought of that. And one of the things Jefferson wanted to do was to just divide up that land between the Mississippi and the Appalachians as a bunch of rectangles, just nice straight lines because it looked basically because it looked good on a map. <laughs> and um, you know the western border of some of the new states would be curvy along the Mississippi River, but the rest of Jefferson's map, which exists, is is all just straight lines. And as that region started to settle, people said, well, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, we got a straight line going through, you know, Lake Superior or whatever. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so that area settled with what I would call more reasonable boundaries. But then Congress, you know, all of a sudden through various reasons, the war with Mexico, the uh, settlement with England and so on, acquired what is all now Western United States, west of the Mississippi. And what are you going to do with that? And so, you know, as I say, people in Congress, the, the, the power brokers, most of them knew nothing about the West. In fact, only one person in Congress, a non-voting member, when Idaho became a territory, had even been to Idaho. So it seemed pretty easy to them that we've got all this land, let's just make orderly boxes out of it. You know, we'll make uh, some provisions for rivers if we need to, but basically let's just draw straight lines on the map. And that's how that occurred, as I say. 
you know, if you look at Wyoming and Colorado, that's kind of the apex of a congressional <laughs> ideal. You know, they're, they're perfect rectangles and Utah narrow. So that was the reason for it. I mean, it looks nice on a map, but it just doesn't make much sense. But then these were not Westerners who were making the decisions. Early on, I think you in, in the book, you describe how the issue of making a straight line and a pretty thing on a map is a very different prospect than finding that line on the ground. Uh, can you talk a little bit maybe about our southern border? Yeah, well, you know, again, to draw the line along the, the 42nd parallel, which is Idaho's southern border, again, looks good on a map, but how do you know where that border is? Uh, so, you know, Idaho territory came about in 1863 with that 42nd parallel as its southern border, but it wasn't until the 1870s that anyone got out to survey it. So, and basically all these borders are the same. People would cross from one side to the other and not know that they were in another territory, or in some cases in the early days with the fur trappers, knowing that they were, for example, in Spanish or Mexican Mexican claims. So presented some uh, crossing these kind of imaginary borders that appear only on maps. It kind of caused, you know, international diplomatic problems. That 42nd parallel, by the way, goes clear back to the early 18th century. That line was a line that was drawn to establish a, a division between Spanish and American territories in the West. I just happened to hold on all those years and become the, the southern border of Idaho. But these kind of mythical lines that appear just don't make much sense on the land until you can get out and survey the place to know where you are. So was there confusion between Idahoans and Utahns at that point then? You know, little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was uh, a, a lot of uh, folks and Mormon colonists who settled uh, several towns in southern, what now we know as southern Idaho, but before the land had surveyed, they, they thought that they were in northern Utah. And it wasn't until the survey was done in the 1870s that they realized that all of a sudden they're Idaho residents rather than Utah residents. And it, see, it seems like politics always plays a pretty heavy role in determining where the line goes on the map. If we move away from straight lines, where the placement goes comes down to what maybe what resources are available on those lands and who wants them. Does that explain some of our borders? Oh, I think it explains all of them. Yeah, I, I think they're all all uh, defined by by the politics of the time. You know, I, I divide the book into into six chapters because the borders came about in six different ways. Uh, you know, the southern border, the border with Oregon, border with Washington, Canadian, Montana, and Wyoming. Each one of those is a separate story. But politics was the determining factor in in all of them. Had had really nothing to do with logic or how people in this place called Idaho could unite and, and somehow manage to get along with one another and manage to make a territory and a state successful, that had virtually no impact on how Idaho got its borders. You know, I've always wondered how the panhandle formed because it's such a narrow piece of land. Was it because there was a gap between Washington and Montana or how did, how did that actually form? Well, it's kind of a, a multi-part story, but the, the real culprit in, in Idaho having that narrow panhandle was a guy by the name of Sidney Edgerton. So I had mentioned that in 1864, the territorial legislature had sent a, uh, a memorial to Congress saying, you know, we need to shrink this huge territory. 
And along with that memorial, they said that they wanted the eastern border of Idaho to be along the Continental Divide. And then the, the legislators just kind of forgot about it, thought they'd done their job. Congress will do what we want them to do, which was a big mistake for Idaho. At the same time, uh, Sidney Edgerton had been appointed by President Lincoln to serve on the territorial Idaho Territorial Supreme Court, but he came out kind of late in the year and wasn't able to make it to Lewiston, which is the, again the capital in those days, and kind of got stuck in in what we you know Bannock City, you know, what we now is in Montana. And the Bannock City folks uh, had a, a different idea. They just didn't really want to have to face their, their existence crossing the Bitterroot Mountains to get over to the capital of Lewiston. So they sent Sidney Edgerton, Edgerton, who had been a member of Congress, kind of knew his way around Congress, back to D.C. to lobby on behalf of a different border from Montana, one that would follow the Bitterroot Mountains rather than the Continental Divide on the Rocky Mountains. And because he was there... Congress really did have, you know, we're in the middle of the Civil War. They had, members of Congress had a lot more on their mind than what's going on about a Western border and could honestly care less. So Sidney Edgerton carried the day. And that's when we got that strangely shaped border along the Bitterers. And many people think was established by drunken surveyors, but actually it was all, it, was all, it, it has that look to it. And that myth has been around for a long time. But actually, that border was all spelled out by Congress. It was all because of Sidney Edgerton's lobbying. So once that happened, it really constricted that panhandle into a very tiny space. The The western border had already been established uh, between Washington and, and Idaho. So, you know, that's how that narrow panhandle came to be. And there's been many efforts over the years, and, and even very contemporarily, although mo mostly lighthearted in the recent past to establish a new territory, a new state that would include eastern Washington, western Montana, and northern Idaho, which really, again, makes much more logical sense because the trade patterns going back thousands of years in, in that part of the world are east-west. They're not north-south. So that's why we've been spending 170 years, I guess, now and, and millions and millions of dollars trying to build a highway to connect north and south Idaho. <laughs> yeah. It is the biggest quirk of this state. If you live, as we do in the southeast corner, uh, getting to the north is really challenging. Oh, yeah. Uh, and like you're saying, a lot of the natural conduits are east-west. That's the way the, the land wants people to flow. And, That's right. and our borders defy that. It's made life difficult for Idaho. <laughs> it's been a constant struggle. I, to understand Idaho history, you really have to understand the that division. Uh, and I'm not talking about cultural and political. Um, I'm talking about just the, the division, the mountainous division between North and South Idaho, which leads to a different and, and did lead to cultural and, and uh, political differences because of the you know the different land that people are are trying to adapt to. But no, you can live your whole life in North Idaho and never visit Boise and not really have much of a reason to do that. I mean, you go to Spokane, you know, for for anything that you would want to do. And that 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 hasn't changed. Well, we could extend that argument uh, of, of border formation along Idaho's west to current interest in expanding the Idaho concept into parts of eastern Oregon. And this is an, an idea that gets renewed every once in a while. 
Yeah, now it's kind of going under the the name Greater Idaho, and uh, and it, yeah, you're right. It, it does go back a long ways. That uh, that border between Oregon and and Idaho is is one of the earlier ones because Oregon became a, a state in 1859, and so that that border that the Oregon's eastern border was established long before there was a place called Idaho, but it then became the western border of Idaho. But you know, in the in the Oregon Constitutional Convention in 1857, there were various discussions about I mean, well, big discussions about where the border should be. But um, one of the most significant was from the only representative of what now is Eastern Oregon at the Constitutional Convention said something that you know just basically said, you know, you people living west of the Cascades are always going to be different than those of us east of the Cascades. You're going to grow faster. There's going to be more people there. You're going to have a different politics than we do. It's just the nature of the land. And it was a very, you know, profound statement, and but turned out to be very true. At that same time, there was talk about Oregon's southern border, and there was a, quite a bit of talk about establishing a state of Jackson, or sometimes later became known as the state of Jefferson. In fact, the public radio station in Southern Oregon is still called Jefferson Radio. <laughs> That's really, it's Northern California and Southern Oregon that have more in common than other parts of Oregon. So differences of rural Eastern and Southern Oregon with the population base in the Willamette Valley go back to the earliest days of statehood in Oregon. And, and we've certainly seen it, you know, this last legislative session, there were folks from the greater Idaho movement coming from Oregon to testify before the Idaho legislature. So we think those are, but that's one of the ideas about the relevance of history and it doesn't really end. Those are very recent movements, but their roots go back, you know, 160 years or more. We really appreciate this conversation and folks wanting to learn more about Inventing Idaho is the name of the book. And it's it's really well written. I'm, I really applaud you for putting this together, Keith. Our trivia question that we started the day with is, what was the first town in Idaho? For many years, people in Pierce thought they were the first town because that's where E.D. Pierce, you know, and his party discovered gold. And as we mentioned, the survey was finally done in southern Idaho in the 1870s. And lo and behold, one of the groups that Brigham Young had sent out to establish a colony in what he thought was northern Utah turned out to be the town of Franklin. And when the survey went in in the 1870s overnight, Franklin realized that they're the oldest town in Idaho, beating out Pierce by about six months. <laughs> so now when you go into uh, Franklin at the time, the, the people were quite upset that they were no longer Utah residents. But they've uh, they've grown accustomed to it now, and now there's a nice mark, historical markers in town proclaiming that Franklin is Idaho's oldest town. Yeah, they should be proud of that. They are. Uh, yeah, yeah, Totally. Totally. It took them a while to get there. <laughs> All right. Good for them. Way to go, Franklin. <laughs> Keith, we really want to thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners, if you want to get a copy of Inventing Idaho, please visit Washington State University Press at wsupress.wsu.edu. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Keith. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Nature of Idaho received support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University, with editing and production done by Ricky Colapietro. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho 
can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.